I've got a Bible. Matthew 5 is our text this morning. We are continuing our conversation about red letters. Red letters as in the letters uh, written in red in your Bibles. Um, Red because uh, they designate the words of Jesus. Um, So we began this last week. And uh, again, uh, they weren't written in red originally. Just so nobody uh, uh, is... Just so you don't think that I'm uh, suggesting these words are any more inspired than the rest of the Bible. The whole Bible is equally inspired. Um, But um, years ago, a guy named Louis Klopsch, um, about uh, around 1900, set out to combat a drift from biblical trust and authority of his generation, and he wanted to bring special attention to the words of Jesus because they were being ridiculed and doubted, and really the life and the person of Jesus was being was subject to so much doubt and criticism. So Klopsch um, had a pretty convincing reasoning behind why he wanted to bring special attention to the words, in, uh, the words of Jesus uh, by putting them in red. And you'll remember this quote from last time. Um, Lewis said, Modern Christianity is striving Jealously to draw nearer to the great founder of the faith. Setting aside mere human doctrines and theories regarding him, it presses close to the divine presence to gather from his own lips the definition of his mission to the world and his revelation of the Father. The Red Letter Bible has been prepared and issued in the full conviction that it will meet the needs of the searchers after truth everywhere. So Klopps believed that Jesus, being God in flesh, uh, brought reason and understanding to the entire Bible because Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is what gives shape and form and meaning to the whole inspiration and revelation of God. So since Jesus was and is God in flesh, the very essence of God in a body, it seems only logical that his word would be special and essential in fleshing out the whole revelation and heart of God. And the fact that he rose from the dead punctuates this and gives us confidence in his testimony. And, and, and we've concluded, and Christians have concluded en masse everywhere, uh, because he rose again, we can't ignore him. And because his words were written down, we can't ignore him or them. It's simply impossible to ignore the impact that Jesus has had on our world. And we're going to talk more about that impact today. And you'd be foolish, wouldn't you? To just outright ignore his words. Just as, just as God spoke creation into being, framing, forming, and filling the universe, Jesus' words frame, form, and fulfill us. That's how important, that's how powerful, that's how impactful his words can be. Because in in Genesis, God spoke God said, let there be. He spoke, framed, and formed, and filled the universe. And in the same way, the words of Jesus can frame, form, and fulfill you. And and here's why we're talking about this. That's why, of course, why we're talking about this. Because if the words of Jesus are the key and the fundamental and essential, uh, as, as the Bible seems to suggest they are, and as history seems to suggest they are, then we can't afford to not value and prioritize them above every other truth. We looked at how Jesus came on the scene and how Matthew presents him in such a way that brings special attention um, to Jesus. And, and the first few words of Jesus, the first few things out of his mouth and Matthew uh, paint a pretty clear um, picture of what we would know, what we would go on to know of, as the gospel. The very few, first few statements that Jesus makes in Matthew pretty much are, listen to me, 
turn to me and follow me. If you go back and read the first few sentences in red, Matthew 3 and then a few in Matthew 4, it's as if Jesus is saying, hey, you want to know who I am? Hey, I am God in flesh. Matthew already told us that in Matthew 1. He comes on the scene. He says, listen to me. The Father in heaven says, yeah, listen to him. Listen to me. Turn, repent, as in turn away from any other source, any other avenue. Turn around, look at me, and follow me. And all these years later, we don't we, can't, we don't only get to look toward heaven, but we can read His words and receive them as truth and remain under their authority. And, and we ask this question, what would it look like if we listened to Jesus before we listened to anything or anybody else? And I hope you thought about that this past week, and maybe you've begun to answer that question and thought about prioritizing that idea because His original followers, they listened to Jesus above and beyond before anything, anyone else. And that's why they changed the world. I mean, if you just read the book of Acts, and, and I challenge you this, Acts is to about 28 chapters long. That's seven days uh, for all 20. If you took a week and read four chapters a day, you could read the whole book of Acts. And I promise you, if you begin to read the, the story of the original disciples, the, the original generation of Christians, if you just read that story with fresh eyes, you will be overwhelmed by how seriously, how sacredly, and how sincerely they took His commandments, and how so devoutly they sought to obey His commandment to go and tell the world and live out my teachings to the world. So much that when they, were, when they were arrested, and they were arrested a lot. When they were persecuted, and they were persecuted a lot. When they were at the point of death, and they faced that a lot. Peter famously on one occasion said this, We must obey God. Who, who is God, by the way? Jesus Christ, the one you crucified, He's back to life because He is God in a body. He is our Messiah, and we have been commissioned by Him. And listen, guys, we have read the words in red. Actually, Matthew over here, he wrote them down, right? John over here, he wrote them down. Mark is writing my version of the story. Listen, guys, we've heard them, we've read them, we've memorized them, and we can't disobey them. Woo, right? What about that passion, right? And of course... The authorities said, well, that's sweet, Peter. And when they called the apostles unto them, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus ever again. Well, that's nice. We're going to flog you. We're going to beat you within an inch of your grave. And we'll see how much you obey God rather than men. Try this on for size. So they beat them. So don't ever preach or teach the name of the words of Jesus again. And therefore they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And I'll add, and the words. What? They rejoiced. And every day in the temple, they did not cease to teach and preach the Jesus that we hear and read about in the Bible. Because they saw Him with their own eyes and they knew they could not disobey. There are plenty of other examples throughout history, and those examples are the reason why eventually there was a break in the dam, why the West was won away from paganism. And that's why Rome went from being a terror terror to the church to being a testimony for the church. And that's the reason why the Roman Empire... Is, the church's, is in the church's history. And God's kingdom is our destiny because of red-letter obedience. Think about if we were to go back 19, 1800 years 
we would find Christians gathering just like we are. Um, Not in public, of course, but in secret, in private, in hiding in the hills of the Roman Empire. And around this time, Rome would send out one of its legions that would hunt down these Christian gatherings, these little ecclesias, and they would find these Christians, and they would say, you have an opportunity to denounce Christ, but if you do not denounce Him, if you do not swear by Caesar over Him, if you profess that Christ is Lord, we are taking you in our custody, and you will be tomorrow's entertainment in the freshly built Colosseum. And one by one, Christians would refuse to denounce Jesus and they would be dragged into the Colosseum where lions and other systematic torture devices were prepared, where Christians were killed in front of a roaring and cheering audience. For decades, for centuries, this was the way of life for Christians. And it could have stopped if only Christians were more in the shadows. If only they were not so guilty of following the words of Jesus. If only they weren't so red-handed. But eventually, after years of suffering, Rome was no more. But the church kept growing and growing and growing. And now, nearly two millennia later, the church presses on. And Rome is a museum of ruins where crosses are everywhere. Reminding everyone of who won that battle. But every few generations, there needs to be a serious conversation, a come-to-Jesus moment, if you will. Klopp's brought attention to his, and I think God is trying to bring attention to ours about what made the original church so resilient and what can make ours so irresistible. I mean, what if, what if we actually opened up the words of Jesus and took them as serious as they did? What if we listened to Jesus' commandments and we turned and changed the way we thought and the way that we lived based on what He said? And what if we just followed Jesus at His Word? What if Jesus' commandment to love our enemies really took root within us? What if Jesus' instruction about how to overcome anger and lust and greed and fear, what if we really took those serious? What if they really changed our lives? What if we took Jesus serious about money, about relationships, about hell? We've already began that conversation. We're going to continue it. What if we took Jesus so seriously and so sacredly? And and listen, the simple invitation to listen, to turn, and to follow... We've concluded, and we're going to continue to find out, that red letters will always equal live better. You can ask the original generation of Christians, you can ask any generation of Christians that take them seriously. The original generation of Christians, they absolutely got this. And that's why they couldn't refuse to follow them and obey them and keep them so close to their hearts. They took reading Jesus' Word and obeying His words as seriously as He took bleeding for them. They took His words as sacredly as He took saving their souls. What if we did? For the rest of our time, we're going to look at the speech that really kicked off the Jesus movement. If the few statements in chapters 3 and 4 are the beginning of His ministry, Matthew 5 is the beginning of the Jesus movement that would later be called the way and that we call the church. Now, imagine though. Imagine you're in his audience and you've already walked away from Judaism because it wasn't getting you anywhere. Mainly, it wasn't getting you closer to God. And John the Baptist comes on the scene and he storms into the, into the community pro- pro- proclaiming a Messiah is on his way with a, with a pitchfork and an axe. And I mean, if that's not apocalyptic, I don't know what is. I mean, he's going to burn the chaff, i.e. he's going to destroy Rome and he's going to set up a kingdom, i.e. he's going to exalt Israel back to the way it used to be, even better. I mean, so you've already bet the farm on Jesus if you're in the audience that day. He's your last great hope. You've 
You've heard the heavens thunder at His baptism. You've heard the whispers of His miracles. You've heard the story of His encounter with the devil in the desert. You've heard about His power over demons and disease. You've turned to Him. You've listened to Him. You are uh, repenting of all the ways that you used to have lived. And now you are following Him. And Jesus sees the crowd forming by by no means of an insignificant sum. And the beginning of Matthew 5 tells us that Jesus sees the multitude, which would have been thousands. And He begins to ascend, or He went up in or on a mountain. So when Jesus sees the crowds, He thinks, hey, I'm going to ascend to this mountaintop and address as many as I can. Now, if you're a Jew in the first century, and you're on Messiah watch, because you would have been on Messiah watch for as long as you've been alive. For generations, the Jews were waiting for a Messiah. If you were a Jew in the first century, plugged into your Bible, and a would-be prophet, a hope-so Messiah, starts ascending a mountain, and there are thousands of people around Him, your God siren goes off. Okay, If you're a Jewish person and you're a devout religious Jew and you are following after a prophet who starts walking up a mountain and starts talking about the kingdom of God, you start saying, oh, this might be the one. Because all of a sudden you start hearing, hearing in your head the stories of Old Testament glory, right? You start thinking about, oh, there's going to be thunder and fire and miracles. I mean, just sit back, buckle up. Matthew, take your notepad out because this is about to get good. And Jesus sees everybody's excitement because they know that he knows what, he knows that, that, that what they're thinking. And he's intentionally leaning into this moment. And he kicks off the movement with a speech that... I can't help but think was far from what they expected. I can't help but think it disappointed them because they didn't anticipate the new Moses or the better Moses, the ultimate would-be greatest Messiah prophet of all time. They didn't expect this to come out of his mouth. So they've ascended this mountain, and if you and I were there, we've ascended this mountain. He's our Messiah. He seems to be unassuming and average, but we see Him as a warrior. We see Him with eyes ablaze and a sword in hand and an army assembled, and we think this is the speech that's going to dismantle the Roman Empire. It's going to send a warning to anybody that dare opposes the kingdom of God. And turns out, that's exactly what it would do. But the Messiah's method would be different than what anybody expected. So Jesus opens His mouth and He teaches them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, you, all of you today. Congratulations. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Congratulations, you've joined the team. Good luck. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, and for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now let me try to put this in context for you. If I'm there that day expecting Jesus to kick off a movement that's going to dismantle Rome and build God's kingdom, 
a therapy session about how to cope with all my problems and remain meek and mild when facing a bloodthirsty world is not my idea of a pep rally. I mean, if I were there, I'd probably get up and I'd raise my hand and I'd say, okay, Jesus, you know, excuse my Greek, but what the Diablos was that? That means devil. I didn't say anything inappropriate. I was going to say Hades, but that might be a little bit too much. I mean, what do you mean blessed are the poor? We're in this to get rich. I mean, what do you mean? You know, we're not in this for comfort. We're in this for conquest. Meek. Jesus, in this world, might makes right. Merciful, I mean, the takeover we have in mind is about revenge. Do you know what happens when you make peace with Rome? You get swallowed up. This is going to take war, Jesus. We're not in this for meek and mild and comfort and, and peacemaking and mercy. We're in this for victory. And uh, I mean, Jesus, what do you mean persecuted? Do you think we're following you because we're, it, we want to you know, lose in life? No, we're with you because we want to win. I mean, we've had enough oppression and you're trying to convince us to follow you and you're telling us that there, there's going to be a cost? I mean, you're telling us up front always that there's going to be some sort of cost involved? I mean, whoa, 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 Jesus. What is going on? And I can imagine Peter and John and a few others who invited their friend to come that day were like, whoa, whoa, Jesus. Could you do a miracle to save this? Or maybe tell that, tell that parable about the footprints in the sand? You know, the two sets? That's not in the Bible. <laughs> Something to get the crowd going? I mean, these categories just don't fit into what we're expecting out of Messiah. And maybe Jesus would, could sense it, and maybe this was all part of the plan. And then he cuts right to the chase, and he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? If it is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He says, guys, guys, guys. You're thinking about taking the world on the way the world has taken you on. You're wanting to fight the world the way the world has pushed you and held you back. You're wanting to take on the world the way the world has taught you to be. That is not how we're going to change and save the world. He says, the reason why I've told you that all these things are virtues that you should chase after is because you are the salt of the earth. As in, you are the preservation. You are what will prevent decomposition of this planet. He tells them that you are going to be the preservative that keeps the earth from rotting and from smelling. Yes, the world's a pretty bad place, and it's been getting worse, but you, you are the hope to reverse its course. In an age where might made right. In a day when men with power and money set all the moral standards. And you can imagine how that worked out. Jesus says the church is going to swing the tide back the other way. And listen, 2,000 years later, much of what we consider common decency is not common at all. It's the result of the impact that Christianity has had on our world. The expectation of kindness and courtesy, grace, the idea of morality was learned. And in many ways, the ideas that are baked into our country even are all because the original Jesus followers eventually got this and ran with it. I mean, think about it. In our world, the idea that, that women would be inferior to men is just completely abnormal. But the ancient world, that was the standard. Women were traded like cattle in the ancient world. Children were thought as nuisances. Children were thought to be burdens and not 
fully people. In the ancient world, it wasn't anything to own someone or own several someones. But in today's world, we understand that women, children, and are equal to men and have there's no inferior between. We understand that slavery is a complete abomination to God. But that didn't happen because people just woke up and thought, hey, that's wrong. It happened because for thousands of years Christianity has made an impact on our culture. And it's made a difference. Listen, we consider things like compassion, mercy, sacrifice, humility, and courage. We think they're virtues, but the ancient world saw them as foolish and weak. None of these things are human nature, but they reflect the Christian worldview that has turned the ancient world upside down and inside out. And the original followers of Jesus, they got this and they painted the town red and that's why the world was changed. Jesus drew it out in these first few verses. It's as if He's saying, you have no standing, but you are the last stand. You are the last hope for this world. Our world has been given a second life, a new dome. By the worldview that says God sees the world and He values. That brought attention to a small group that eventually became a major group that held close to conviction that our beliefs about God matter. Our behavior towards people matters. He says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. We're not just talking about Judea anymore. We're going global with this. You are the light of the world. A city that is set or placed on a hill cannot be hidden. In the ancient world, cities were built on the highest of hills. And they were built out of white limestone so as the sun would reflect. And they had lanterns in every window along the city walls so as the night would always be lit up. And Jesus says to you and I, the church has been strategically placed in the world as a refuge for all, to influence all, to be a light to all. And he goes on to say, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The original Christians, they wrapped their arms around this. They weren't only defined by their favorite worship song or by their church attendance or what they shared online. They were defined by their characters. And it made a difference in their world. And Jesus wants our personas. He wants our characters. He wants our behavior to be so extraordinary, so preserving, and so bright that people are compelled to believe. You think, well, that's, that's impossible. It's worked once. And it's kept working ever since. This turned the world upside down. It can do it again. What initially seemed so far into them eventually became their anthem. So if you want to know who we are, this is it. Before we finish, I want to back up and bring attention to a few of these defining characteristics that Jesus lays out under the category of being salt and light. Now remember, Jesus is ascending this mountain. He had, this, had to instantly give everyone chills. They instantly thought about Moses giving the commandments from the mountaintop. Could this be Jesus' way of starting His own movement off with His own set of commandments? And exactly... That's exactly what it was. There are ten commandments. There are ten beatitudes. I don't think that's coincidental at all. Now, y'all know this. The first commandments of the ten are all about defining God, but Jesus does not spend much time talking about that because He has already been defined, and Matthew has already declared Him as God. And you can 
You look at the Ten Commandments and you can see that Jesus fulfills the very first four. He is God. He is the only and ultimate image of God. He is God's highest name. He is our rest. So if you are wondering who, is all, who are all those commandments about and how are they fulfilled, Jesus Christ is and only is the one true God. He is the image. He is the ultimate name. He is the, where we find our Sabbath rest. The last, last six commandments plus all the other 600 plus commandments are all about our behavior. And here's what's make Jesus, what makes Jesus' introduction to Christianity so powerful. Whereas the commandments said do this and, do the, and don't do that, Jesus goes deeper. Jesus presents Christianity as a path to be better, not just a command to do better. As in, this isn't just rules that you are to keep and learn. Because here's what happens with rules. You learn when to keep them based on who's watching. Right? Because when mama's home, you don't do that. But when mama's gone, you do it in as much as and however you want to. Right? Right? When the teacher is there, you don't do it. But when the substitute's there, Lord, you haze the poor person. Right? Right? Whenever you are under the authority of someone where they can see you, you better be on your best behavior. But when nobody's looking, you can do whatever you want because that's what rules are for, right? To be broken. Come on, that's true. This is about changing your heart because your nature can't handle rules. Your nature needs to be, to be changed. Changing your character so that the overflow and the behavior will take care of itself, as in will be a product of the change. The law addresses actions, but Christianity addresses attitudes. That's why they're called the Beatitudes. The attitudes that you should have. The blessed attitude of a child of God. Blessed, as Jesus preludes all of these, means to be approved and improved. As in God says, hey, you're right on the money. You are chasing after me. You are mine. And now I'm going to make you like me. Approved by God and improved by God. So right off the bat, Jesus is signaling that Christianity is greater than the old way, greater than religion, because it's actually going to make a difference. It's going to result in a better life. And it's all because Jesus doesn't just address symptoms. This might sting a little bit. He doesn't just address symptoms. He addresses the sickness. He makes you know there's something a little bit wrong, doesn't he? And listen, to put this in an even more contemporary way, Jesus never, ever thinks twice about getting up in your business, as you've probably told someone not to do before. Jesus thinks it's his place. <laughs> It's his right to get up in any of our business. That means he's going to take on our personal life, our private life, our politics, our priorities, our possessions. And if that rubs you the wrong way, then that's okay. Just read it a hundred more times and maybe it'll start getting a little natural. Here's the thing. Christianity is its most effective when it's the most invasive as in it doesn't let you hide and it doesn't let you say, well, I don't know about that and I can't do that and I'm not going to do that, but hey, I love Jesus. No, Christianity, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're not going to run away from me. I love you. And I know what's best for you. And if you continue to hide that, it's going to destroy you and everyone around you. But I am going to be as invasive as I've got to be because, hey, this is how we change the world. But I've got to start with your world. Listen, if you're just here for passivity... 
if you're just going to skirt the perimeter, if you're just looking for a little religion, it ain't going to work. You can't read the red letters and not be confronted and compelled to be better. Jesus addresses our attitudes in such a way that reveals how easily something we may have ignored can cause us to become a version of ourselves that we're not even happy with. And just so you know, these beatitudes, if anything Jesus teaches offends you, He doesn't want to condemn you. The Bible even tells us that God not sent His Son to condemn the world, but that we might be saved through Him. So this is not about making us feel like we have been disabled. This is, this is about making us enabled. He speaks to our current conditions. And facing our difficult circumstances, He seeks to change the way we face our challenges. He addresses the poor, the hurt, the meek, and the weak. And He tells them hope is not gone. In fact, it may be closer and more accessible than you even realized. And come on, you've all tried to numb your brokenness with the world before, haven't you? You've realized that becoming a proud, greedy, ruthless person doesn't make you or anybody else happy. And it may fill you with a lot of this world's good, but it doesn't mean that everything else is good. Jesus prefaced this entire thing by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, poor in spirit doesn't mean that we should have no self-worth or be deprecating toward ourselves. It, It speaks of refusing to rely on ourselves for our spiritual needs. And this is what I want to close asking you this morning. Do you realize that you have spiritual needs? You are a creature, which means you have a creator. And you need a connection. You need a relationship with God. There are needs that cannot be met by this world. In fact, the world is actually draining us as we speak. The world tries, and it tries to fill the voids with its content. But only heaven can make us truly content. And only those who seek after heaven like a beggar, that's what that word poor means, poor in spirit, like a beggar, like a desperate soul, only those who say, God, I'm chasing after your blessing for all it's worth because you and you alone have what I need. Only those that pour themselves out with absolute desire for all that he has will receive what heaven has to offer. I mean, we sang it earlier, right? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. As in this is it, God. If you don't do it, I'm done. When's the last time you went to God and said, God, I am desperate, I am empty, I am in need of your help, of your grace, and I have tried to find every other avenue, but it's not working down here. And God in heaven starts clapping and shouting and saying, thank goodness, they figured it out. Next time you're run down, next time you're struggling, next time you're depressed, next time you're overwhelmed, don't think, wow, it's only because I'm tired or I'm lonely or I need this or need that. Maybe your soul is trying to overpower your flesh and tell you that its needs are greater and should be prioritized. I'm not saying there's not other stuff going on. I just mean maybe your soul is trying to say, listen, get out of the way, flesh, because I have a need and I need to make it known. When's the last time you were sensitive to what your soul needed? What your soul wants? I mean, if you want food, you go get it, don't you? If you want a day off, you take it, don't you? If you want new, new stuff, you buy it, don't you? 
After this, Jesus goes on to speak to us about our weaknesses. And hopefully this reliance on Him can cause us to see our unfortunate circumstances. They're not stumbling blocks, but they're stepping stones to get to God. Our wounds and our weaknesses and our worries, they don't disqualify us. But they actually direct us to Jesus. They can give you a bad attitude, but they don't have to. Because if what, what if we worship and sought after God in spite of these things? And He didn't promise, God never promises that He'll erase our hardships. But by worshiping Him, we can find their purpose. A heart that properly surrenders to God. A heart that isn't making excuses. Not allowing anything to keep it from, doing, from following Jesus is ready not just to be better, but do better. And be better will lead to do better. And that's why Jesus goes on to talk about how we should be, we should do or act differently in terms of showing mercy and being pure and making peace. A heart that, is, that rests in Jesus will re- result in reflect mercy. Show compassion and know that forgiveness isn't an option but a compulsion of every true believer. A heart that has received forgiveness also knows that it's foolish to once again become polluted by the world. Because impurity will only hinder our ability to see and know God's will. Which almost always involves sharing mercy with one another, making peace, reconciling as God has reconciled us through Christ. Your purity is so important because purity channels clarity. So not only will you be better and you can do better, but you'll see better and you'll know better. When you remain with Jesus, when you worship Jesus, when you follow Jesus, you're being purified. When you don't follow Him, when we compromise His words and way for some inferior way, we are muddying our vision. We are desensitizing our hearts. At the end of that, Jesus says, these shall be called the children of God. As in they are a spitting image of God Himself. But there will be plenty that don't respect that. There will be consequences. There will be those that work against you. But if you ask the original followers of Jesus, they would say it was absolutely worth it. And I think you'll say the same thing. Let me ask you this in closing. How seriously do you take verses 13 through 15 or 16? How serious do you wear the mantle of salt of the earth? Light of the world. Refuge on a hill. How serious do you take that idea that people will see your good works and they'll glorify God, but if they don't see good works, then they won't glorify. They might say something about God, but it's not good. How serious do you wear that mantle of salt and light and refuge? Would you just for a few minutes consider what your soul wants the most and where your soul is the most satisfied? Would you hear these red letters as an invitation to be better? And do better? You know, the Gospels aren't the only place that we find red letters. Jesus wrote a postcard to some churches later on. He sent them through John. And he sent a letter to a church called Laodicea that many believe is a picture of the last day's church. A church that is so compromised and so distracted. Listen to Jesus' plea to them. For you say I'm rich, I prosper and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you might be clothed. 
The shame of your nakedness may not be seen. The salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So why is he saying this? Because he loves you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. My words are right there. Maybe you would confess that you are so desperate for God's blessing, for His approval and His improvement of your life, that you're, you're ready to start taking the words in red serious. And maybe you would confess that you haven't been doing that for a long time. And maybe you're ready to start taking that mantle and that role of light and salt and refuge serious. Anyone who comes to Jesus sorry for their sin, humble in their flesh, hungry in their soul, will not leave empty. He guarantees as much. So if you've been living according to somebody else's plans for your life, how's that working out for you? What's your soul think about that? Don't let these red letters pass you by because it might just mean that a better life could pass you by. And according to Jesus, a better world can be realized. But we won't see a better world until we do better. Until we are better. And I think y'all are up for the challenge.